0: Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 19, Numbers Are Everything. Of all the explanations of how the First World War began, American writer W.E.B. Dubois had one of the most intriguing. If you're familiar with your American history, Dubois was the first African American to receive a PhD from Harvard University and had a prolific career as a public researcher and political activist, helping form the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, in 1909. When the war in Europe unleashed five years later, Dubois took a different perspective than that of his contemporaries. Writing in early 1915, he put forth the argument that the roots of the conflict could be found not in Europe, but in Africa. Dubois writes, quote, We speak of the Balkans as the storm center of Europe, but this is mere habit. The Balkans are convenient for occasions, but the ownership of materials and men in the darker world is the real prize that is setting the nations of Europe at each other's throats, end quote. Since the First World War was far more Eurocentric than the Second, we should stop and consider Dubois's argument. In previous episodes of the Great War podcast, we spent quite a bit of time talking about imperialism and the race for Africa, whether it was the disputes over the Suez Canal, the standoff at Fashoda, the South African Boer War, the Moroccan Crises, or the Italo-Turkish War in Libya, Africa certainly was a focal point for much of our discussion. Acquiring colonies on the continent was the calling card if a nation wished to be considered a great power, and the dispute over said colonies and imperial possessions was a source for much of the boondoggling among European powers in the pre-war years. But what happened in Africa at the outbreak of the war seems almost anticlimactic. Unlike the Second World War, Africa was not the site of large-scale fighting. There was no First World War equivalent to Rommel's Africa Corps and their clashes with Montgomery and Patton. But that does not mean Africa lay completely dormant. In the opening weeks, there were multiple campaigns on the continent, as the British, French, and Belgians quickly overran the minimal German possessions, some operations taking just two weeks. At the start of the war, Germany laid claim to four African countries, Togoland, Cameroon, German Southwest Africa, modern-day Namibia, and German East Africa, which today is the region shared by roughly Rwanda and Burundi. When the war broke out, The German Foreign Office had no plans to defend these colonies, and they were left to the mercy of the Allies who greatly outnumbered them. Africa by 1914 was by far and large an Allied possession. In terms of geography, the French held the greatest swath of territory with nine possessions, primarily in the north. The British had an overwhelming 17, neutral Spain and Portugal had three apiece, the Italians two and the Belgians one. Only Liberia remained independent from European rule. On August the 7th, German-held Togoland was quickly overrun by a two-pronged attack coming from the British Gold Coast, modern-day Ghana, and French Dahomey. In just 19 days, the German garrison which was no more than a few hundred colonial troops and policemen surrendered. German Cameroon would befall a similar fate, but the larger extent of geography allowed its defenders to hold on just a bit longer. Despite the colonial capital falling from French and British troops from Equatorial Africa and Nigeria on September 27th, fighting would continue, although in low intensity, until February of 1916, when colonial troops from Belgian Congo invaded from the southeast. But it was in German East Africa where things played out a little bit differently. There, a German colonel, Paul von Litov vorbeck organized an effective guerrilla defense of the colony. Vorbeck, whose efforts have drawn numerous comparisons to T.E. Lawrence, was determined to draw as much Allied equipment and manpower away from Europe, giving Germany the best possible advantage on the continent. Despite beginning the war with just a handful of machine guns to supplement his total lack of heavy weaponry, Vorbeck's campaign would become the longest-lasting theater of the war, and did not come to a close until November 25, 1918, two weeks after the armistice in Europe. Of course, when talking about the British, Germans, or French in Africa, we're not really talking about them in the same sense as we would in Europe. The majority of the fighting was done by black colonial troops, recruited from the local population. In German Togoland, its garrison was 1,500 strong, but of these, 1,200 were Africans compared to just 300 European German. The disparity in who was tasked with the burden of the fighting was universal among the colonial armies. For example, the Royal West African Frontier Force, used in Togoland and Cameroon, consisted of troops from Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Gambia, and Ghana, and the king's African rifles was composed of just 73 British officers to 2,325 Africans. In many cases as well, white officers commanding colonial armies chafed at the idea of being stuck in some backwater colony while the real conflict was being fought in Europe. Colonel Vorbeck, at the height of his campaign in East Africa, had some 14,000 men, with 11,000 being German-African troops known as the Askari which in Swahili means soldier. Despite winning admiration from both friends and enemies in Europe for his chivalrous behavior towards white settlers and POWs, his views on the Askari and colonial troops were slightly different. He showed little regard for the local populations he encountered, making frequent use of scorched earth tactics and allowing his men to plunder non-white settlements to ensure their loyalty, hardly the line of Africa romanticization he is known for. Although the fighting in Africa was quote-unquote won by the Allies, it continued to be a source of agitation throughout the war. Vorbeck's long campaign had a profound effect on surrounding nations. In Malawi, an uprising led by an American-educated Baptist minister, John Chalembui, resulted in the beheading of a British plantation owner, while the Boers in South Africa felt the success of Vorbeck's efforts were the perfect time to assert their independence from the British Empire. Civil unrest in the forms of protests and walkouts would require the British to keep a constant naval presence and well-armed garrison in the event of an uprising taking place. But by and large, the outcome of the African campaigns were never in question, and even the protracted conflicts in East Africa never threatened the overall war efforts of the Entente and Central Powers. So if we were to go back to Dubois' theory, it is not incorrect to argue that the First World War provided the perfect opportunity for the Allies, to finally eject the German presence from Africa, something which they were never comfortable with, and secure their dominance on the continent for the next several decades. During the Paris Peace Conference, the British, French, and Belgians would receive the lion's share of Germany's possessions, and many of the local blacks, hoping their service in the war would result in greater autonomy, would find themselves back under new regimes. Meanwhile, way over on the other side of the world, the situation in East Asia and the Pacific played out in a similar fashion. Germany had a string of possessions in the Far East as well, many of them on the numerous island chains and archipelagos which dot the Pacific. The Carolines, the Marianas, the Marshalls, Samoa, shared with the United States, and the Bismarck Archipelago off the coast of New Guinea were all German claims. However, their most significant possession was in China, and that was the port of Qingdao, located in the Shandong province which they had forced from the Chinese back in 1898, and if you will recall from episode 7, helped trigger the Boxer Rebellion. Within 15 years, King Dao, which is located just 80 kilometers west of the Korean coast, had flourished due to its excellent coal supply and rich deposits of gold and copper, making it the hub of German trading in the Pacific. But it was King Dao's warm water port which drew the ire of another Pacific power. As we already know, the Boxer Rebellion proved to be the driving force which prompted the British to sign the military alliance with the Japanese back in 1902. Since then, the Anglo-Japanese alliance had been renewed as recently as 1911, and although it had originally been conceived to guard against Russian expansion, had been modified to come into effect in case either signatory found itself in a war with two or more powers. The British declaration of war against Austria-Hungary on August the 12th was the catalyst for the Japanese to formally enter. So on August 23rd, the Empire of Japan declared war on Germany, but this had nothing to do with honouring their alliance commitment. The Japanese had gone in for their own imperial ambitions. In fact, the British never made that much of an effort to get them on board in the first place. What the Japanese were after was a greater presence in the Far East, and having been screwed out of the rewards in past conflicts with China and Russia, were hoping that by working with, not against, the European powers would be to their benefit. With the help from Commonwealth forces from New Zealand and Australia, the German Pacific holdings began to fall one after another. While German and Japanese forces never engaged in pitched contests, the Japanese seizing of King Dao was of special significance. Not only did it give Tokyo a foothold on the Chinese mainland, but it also set in motion one of the most famous naval events of the war, and that of course was the flight of Admiral von Spee's East Asia Squadron, a story which is simply too good to pass up. Maximilian Johann Maria Hubertus Reichstaff von Spee was born in 1861. Homeschooled at his family's estate in the Rhineland, Speed joined what was then a meager German navy as an 18-year-old cadet. He cut his chops in overseas service in Cameroon and Togoland before the war, and saw action as a gunboat commander during the Boxer Rebellion. In 1913, he achieved the rank of Rear Admiral, and was given command of the East Asia Squadron based at King Dao. At full strength, the East Asia Squadron consisted of eight cruisers. This included a pair of 12,000 ton armored cruisers, his flagship the Scharnhorst, and the Gneisenau. The remaining six vessels, the Emden, Nürnberg, Leipzig, Dresden, Karlsruhe, and Königsberg, were light cruisers, merely 3,500 to 4,000 tons apiece. These eight vessels made up the largest and most dangerous overseas fleet the Germans had. Actually, scratch that, it was the only overseas fleet the Germans had, as the rest were redeployed in landlocked water like the Baltic or North Sea. When the war began, Spie was in a difficult position, as the squadron was scattered throughout the Pacific. The Kroningsberg was on duty off German East Africa. The Nurnberg was currently en route to relieve the Leipzig off the coast of Mexico, while the Dresden and Karlsruhe were on deployment in the Caribbean. Spie himself was at sea also, with the Scharnhorst and Gneisenau, off to conduct gunnery exercises in the Carolines. When Britain declared war on Germany, it meant that Spie now had to contend with the colossal Royal Navy and potentially the formidable Japanese, who based on their alliance with Britain, would be inclined to report German warship sightings to their ally. Even before the Japanese seized King Dao, Spee could not risk ordering his squadron to come to home port, but he did have two advantages. One, the Allies had no idea where his squadron was, and second, the Pacific Ocean itself, nearly 165 million square kilometers of open water, with numerous islands and atolls in which to conceal his ships from enemy spotters a rare example of when the hunted had a leg up on the hunter. On August the 8th, Spie quickly steamed the Scharnhorst and Gneisenau out from the Carolines, and managed to rendezvous with both the Nuremberg and the Emden, which had been ordered out of King Dao in case the Japanese entered the war. The four cruisers met at Pagan, a secret German outpost located in the Marianas island chain. This was a bold move by Spie, because it brought his squadron closer to the Japanese mainland, but at the same time, that was the last thing the Allies expected. With half his squadron assembled, Spee was able to get a better grasp on the situation at hand. They were cut off and surrounded by not only the Royal Navy, but the French, Russian, and Japanese. The United States Navy, although neutral, was agreed could not be trusted, and avoided at all costs. The Admiral was a practical man, and it was only a matter of time before he was finally captured or destroyed by a superior force. So it was decided that if they could not make it back to Germany, they would cause as much mayhem to Allied shipping as possible. In order to consume less coal and make the ships as light as possible, the Scharnhorst, Gneisenau, Emden, and Nürnberg were stripped of all unnecessary trimming such as wood paneling and furniture, basically anything that was not tied down and could pose a potential fire hazard. It was then decided that the most vulnerable place for an attack lay in the east, all the way to the coast of South America, some 10,000 kilometers from their present location. Enemy presence would be negligible compared to what they would encounter in the Indian Ocean, in trade from Chile and Argentina, supplied the British Empire with the lion's share of its beef and grain. So an attack along the shipping channel would be a humiliating setback for the British, and force the Admiralty into a response. Prior to raising anchor and steaming from Pagan, the Emden, at the urging of its captain Carl von Müller, was dispatched as a lone raider to wreak havoc on trade ports in the Indian Ocean, but also to provide an enticing distraction while the main force made its way east. How Spee managed to complete this voyage without being detected is an incredible feat of seamanship and good luck. Spee would often resort to directing his ships onto oncoming storms to shake Allied patrols, and to resupply his coal stores and food stocks would trap Allied cargo ships or orchestrate rendezvous with friendly colliers through the use of wireless telegraphs and undersea cables, always broadcasting from his smaller cruisers to mask the presence of the Scharnhorst and Genesenau. In some cases, his crew would barter for supplies with local populations they encountered on the various islands. According to Keith Yates, these transactions were honorable exchanges, and were never taken at gunpoint or through a show of force. Meanwhile, on board the Emden, Karl von Müller made two successful raids, one at Madras, the third largest port in British India on September 22nd, and Penang on October the 28th. What made these raids most impressive was the minimal civilian casualties sustained, and the fact that Mueller was evading five hostile navies in the area. The fifth being Dutch merchants, who could not be counted on to stay silent if the Emden lingered in one area for too long. On October 14th, Spee managed to somehow rendezvous his remaining cruisers at Easter Island, one of the most remote places on the planet. Better yet, the Leipzig and Dresden had escaped Allied clutches in the Caribbean, and had arrived with several colliers in tow to help restock the squadron. The fourth ship, the Karlsruhe, which was in the Caribbean with the Dresden, suffered an ammunition explosion and thus never made it to the rendezvous. After resupplying his squadron, Spee continued towards the Chilean coast. Unfortunately for the Admiralty, the escape of the Dresden would lead to disaster. The Royal Navy Commander of the South Atlantic Fleet, Admiral Christopher Craddock, had been receiving some inconsistent news from London. First Sea Lord Winston Churchill had been under intense pressure to capture Spee's fleet, and after the escape of the Goyben in Breslau, which we covered in episode 14, the mission was beginning to take on special significance. When the Karlsruhe suffered its untimely explosion, Churchill had ordered Craddock to pursue the Dresden with just four ships, and leave the remaining force behind to guard the entrance to the Caribbean. This decision would expose a problem with Royal Navy Command. While Spee and the German admirals were given more freedom from Berlin, the Royal Navy was far more bureaucratic, and a ship could not as much move without written consent from London. There have been reports that Spee's squadron had been spotted as it neared the Chilean coast, but they never made it to Churchill, and thus were not relayed to Craddock. As the Admiral made his way around Cape Horn, he had no idea that five cruisers of Spee's fleet were already there. The two squadrons met off the port city of Coronel on November the 1st, in rolling waves in dark, miserable conditions. Although Spee only had a 5-4 advantage in ships, his cruisers were better armored and equipped with superior firepower. The result was a total victory for the East Asia Squadron, and the first Royal Navy defeat at sea since the War of 1812. Two of Craddock's vessels, his flagship Monmouth and the Good Hope, were sunk and 1,600 sailors including Craddock himself drowned. Despite the best efforts from Spee's crew, they were unable to rescue the drowning men in the pitched waves. The surviving ships, the Glasgow and Otranto, had managed to escape. In exchange for his victory, Spee's casualties were just three wounded and zero ships. The disaster at Coronel sent the Admiralty into convulsions. Churchill described it as the saddest naval action of the entire war, and it served to destroy the aura of invincibility the Admiralty had enjoyed for over a century. Churchill now had two black marks on his Sea Lord resume, the Goibin in Breslau and now Coronel. He would get his third in 1915. In response, Churchill ordered two battlecruisers, the Invincible and Inflexible, to hunt down and destroy Spee's fleet once and for all. Just one of these battlecruisers, affectionately known as the Greyhounds of the Sea, were 20,000 tons apiece and could easily trap and destroy Spee's fleet. Gaff Spee would soon fall to one of his own ruses. In his 10000 kilometer voyage from Pagan, he had duped his pursuers by masking his ship's presence by only broadcasting through one. This worked because the Royal Navy had no approximation to where his fleet was, but after Coronel, the cat was now out of the bag. Spee had taken refuge in the Chilean port of Valparaiso, and there he planned his next move, to raid Port Stanley at the Falkland Islands, assuming it would be lightly defended. However, on December the 8th, as Spee's squadron sailed around the southern tip of the continent, it ran smack into the invincible and inflexible, and both sides were surprised to see each other so soon. The Admiral of the Invincible, Doveton Sturdy, had been shaving in his cabin when news of Spee's arrival came. Spie initially attempted to run, but he soon accepted that the jig was up. Remembering that Turpitz had designed the German fleet with the sole purpose of damaging the Royal Navy as much as possible, Spie reversed course and opened fire. The British victory at the Falklands was more decisive than the German victory at Coronel. Admiral Graf von Spie was killed in the fighting. In the Scharnhorst, Gneisenau, Leipzig, Nuremberg were sunk, and nearly 1,900 sailors drowned. For Sturdy, only 10 men were killed, with no ships lost. The fact that Spee could rally his squadron from all corners of the globe, steam undetected the full length of the Pacific Ocean, and then destroy an equally matched Royal Navy squadron is nothing short of impressive. In total, his ships had travelled some 24,000 kilometres before they were finally sunk. The lone surviving ship from the Falklands, the Dresden, managed to escape to a Chilean port before it was finally scuttled in March 1915. The Emden, which continued to raid ports in the Indian Ocean, was run aground by an Australian cruiser just prior to the Falklands' engagement. In order to bring this thing full circle, the Kroningsberg, which was on duty off East Africa, would be sunk in 1915 as well, and Paul von Litzow-Verbeck would salvage the remaining weapons to help supply his campaign. The destruction of the East Asia Squadron meant that the German naval presence beyond European waters had been removed from the equation, allowing the Allies to relocate more vessels to the Atlantic. Next week, our first episode of the new year will look at the belligerent home fronts and how the war was being received far from the front lines. The civilian population, although stunned by what was unfolding, were prepared to see this thing through into 1915. That's it for this week, I hope everyone had a safe Christmas and are looking forward to a happy new year. If you have not done so, check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a bibliography along with Twitter and email information if you wish to get in touch with me. Questions, comments, and suggestions are always more than welcome. If you wish to help out The Great War Podcast, you can find us on iTunes and write a nice five-star review to help keep us afloat in the rankings and encourage me to keep plugging away. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.